Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Jacob Griffin was diagnosed with schizophrenia when he was 18, and life seemed to get increasingly challenging. It all culminated one night last May. He was having a mental health crisis, and his mom, Karen, worried he was a danger to himself and others. So she called the police. She wanted to help. What happened instead was a nightmare. Jacob was shot and killed in a standoff with police that night. Now, Karen believes if she hadn't called the police, her son would still be alive today. Later this hour, we're going to hear Karen's story and explore community-based alternatives when it comes to responding to and de-escalating mental health emergencies. But first, News Channel 5 here in Nashville recently announced a new initiative they're calling Fresh Start. It allows people to petition the station to have a negative story removed or to have their name taken out of a past story. Here to tell us more about it is News Channel 5 investigative reporter Levi Ismail. Levi, Welcome to This is Nashville. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Pleasure to have you with us. So where did the idea for this come from? So Fresh Start actually is a Scripts-wide initiative, which is the parent company for News Channel 5. And so they came up with an idea to offer this incredible opportunity uh, for our communities. And so they told the stations across Scripps, um, you know, this is something that we think could be very valuable. And if there are any stations out there that would like to take the opportunity to create, you know, some sort of initiative based on this general idea, then by all means, they'd be willing to support it. And so News Channel 5, knowing that, uh, you know, we're we're big advocates for our community and for second chances, really, um, they said, well, we'll start something called Fresh Start. How is your team feeling about this initiative? You know, we all understand that uh, the stories that we put out there involve real people. And at the at the end of the day, we wanna make sure that we are good advocates of our community. And so when you have something like this that can offer people a second chance if they feel like, you know, one story might just be standing in the way of them landing that job or, you know, getting that opportunity uh, for housing even, uh, you know, this might be our way to make a difference. Now, you know, we're both in the news business. And there's a basic mm-hmm. understanding that, you know, facts are facts and time doesn't change that. So why allow people to expunge their records, so to speak? It, it's a pretty strict ki- criteria. I don't want anyone get, to get the impression that, you know, just because you applied, um, you know, you your case will completely leave our website. Um, you know, it, it's, it's pretty strict in terms of how long ago this situation was. Um, you know, and did it involve a a serious crime or a serious felony of that nature? You know, there might be some things here or there where your name may just be attached to, say, for example, a company that did something wrong. And now you're you're long gone from the company. You've done your time, perhaps. Uh, You're on probation and you're trying to find, you know, housing. You're trying to find a job. And every single time they search your name online, they might find something. Mm -hmm. And what we figured is if someone is making the genuine effort to try and clear some of those things up, knowing that they didn't commit a serious crime based on our criteria, 
well, then we don't want to be the ones standing in the way of them moving on with their lives and, you know, possibly making a huge impact in their community for the better. Mm-hmm. Nikki Ellis talked to you about how difficult that experience was for her. Let's listen. It's like a lifetime sentence. You become the total sum of this one action of this one situation. And so it was very difficult just trying to move forward from that. Now, you talked about this a little bit recently, but, you know, a lot of us think about having your name appear in a news story is really no big deal. But it can really set people back, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I think given the nature of the news business, where it's a 24 hour news cycle for the most part, and people are always, you know, we're, we're working constantly on different stories one day after another, we kind of lose sight of the idea that there are real people behind these stories. There are real people that are impacted. And so a story that you did five years ago may not, you know, may not have much of an impact on you right now uh, as a journalist, but the reality is that person is living with what was, what was published you know, all those years ago. And so anyone who Googles it, you know, they might find something on there, even if, you know, for example, if it was a, um, a missing persons case, you know, someone was found safe, but at the time the headline wrote missing persons, so-and-so, well, if anyone Googles you or, you know, they find you online and that's the first thing they see, well, you know, they might not look favorably on you, you know, and we don't want to be, you know, in the business of, keeping people from, you know, good opportunities if they perhaps change their lives or, you know, uh, turn their lives around. So what did Nikki do next? Obviously, it set her back a few years just because, you know, she she couldn't get back to her family. You know, she couldn't uh, find a place for them. And, you know, she ended up starting out with this nonprofit, um, which I think is is doing great work just to to help people who might find themselves in the same type of position. Um, so although she didn't need our help, I thought that she would have been she was a, a great example of someone who, you know, is doing positive things in the community. And had she not been offered, you know, some sort of second chance, even if it wasn't from us, um, she may not have been, you know, doing the things that she's doing at this point question for you. You know, yeah. she told you that her experience had ripple effects too, right? Yes. In what way? Well, very early on when when she returned from jail, you know, her family was pretty much everywhere. Her she had to leave her kids, you know, to to do her uh her prison stint and and so, you know, just trying to build trust with your family again, you know, trying to build trust with your kids to say, listen, I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. And then, you know, just on top of that, she lost her job. Mm. So now here she is trying to rebuild her, her career essentially um, that she had taken so long to, to, you know, actually establish while she's trying to find like the essential things for her family you know, while she's trying to find new housing, while she's trying to make sure that her family trusts her, while she's trying to get a job. And so all those things compound on top of each other to the point where, you know, it can be very overwhelming. Like Nikki's not the only person that I talked to about this. Nikki's the only person who was, you know, kind enough to go on camera. Mm -hmm. There are other people that I talked to uh, besides her. And many of them said the same thing is that, you know, once once it goes out, once the headline is written, like 
people will take that and and that ends up becoming your sentence. Yeah. It's not just what you serve, you know, in jail. You may do probation, you know, never see a day in jail, but you're living this this sentence every single time someone looks you up. What does the process look like to apply? We have an application on our website right now, newschannel5.com, and you'll see a thumbnail of the story. It says fresh start right there on the page. You click that. You can read the story if you want, but on the very bottom, there's an application. You just fill that out. Um, try to put as much information on there as possible, because what we've realized is we've gotten about 10 applications at this point, um, but they're not complete. They may have two, three sentences here or there, but it doesn't really give us the full understanding of what happened and why you feel that, you know, a change needs to be made. And so, you know, we just hope that people can put as much detailed information as they want in the, you know, in the application. And then from there, once we get the application, we have our diversity team and we'll discuss each application as it comes through, we'll sit around and we'll, we'll talk. Okay. You know, what do you think of this situation? Do you feel it meets the criteria? Is there something that you think, you know, they may not, you know, quite meet all the criteria, but you still feel like they, they qualify for some, you know, for some reason. Um, and I think that's the beauty of it is it's not me doing the reviewing, you know, this is bigger than me. This is a team of diverse folks who understand the value of, you know, a second chance. And so these are these are people who are willing to listen to you. These are people who want to hear you out. And hopefully you get the result that you're looking for. Levi Ismail is an investigative reporter at News Channel 5. Levi, thanks for being with us today. My man, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll hear firsthand experiences of calling police when someone you know is having a mental health crisis. Have you ever needed help for a friend or a loved one? What options do you wish were available? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. We want to believe that there's going to be help when we need it. That when we call for help for a family member having a mental health emergency, it's all going to work out. But for Ellie Kane, it wasn't so simple. Producer Tasha A.F. Limley met up with Ellie to hear about a critical time for her husband, David Klein, who has bipolar disorder. Now, they've been together for more than two decades, and she's seen him through ups and downs. Let's start with a good day. Hello, everybody. Y'all doing okay in Facebook land? <laughs> this is David back in 2017 at a Steak and Shake. He's making a video for his Facebook friends. I watched the movie called Spider-Man Homecoming. It was fantastic. David is a guy who loves sharing his interests and going to lunch with friends. He's an artist and his pieces are bright, fluorescent even. He and Ellie, they have a lot of his work displayed at home. That's a Klein Castle, the one right there. That's his painting name, a nod to the geometric shapes and happy oblong faces. Ellie loves David's art and him. They've had a long run together so far, 25 years, which is something to celebrate. It's just like, it, it's hard 
to want to still celebrate that. And he's not home. 911, what's the exact address of your emergency? Ellie called the police back in January. Maybe it was the change in David's dosage, his diabetes, or the toll of the pandemic. And either way, she knew something wasn't right. He was, to my eye, um, going through an exacerbated um, episode of mania. Um, I have gotten accustomed to every so often he gets manic. His medicine is adjusted long enough for him to come down. And then he's, he's balanced. He's functioning. But this time, it was different. It was like he was not reachable. In retrospect, Ellie said she had seen some of the signs throughout the year. Well, like this one time, they were putting away groceries. She told him to put the salad in the left bin and the asparagus in the right. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I said, okay, let's do this one at a time put the salad in the left bin. And he said, I don't know what left is. That scared her. Although she knew these lapses can happen. But then David started talking to people in the television, getting kind of verbally aggressive. And I was like, whoa, this is not him. And it was scary because, you know, you don't know how far off in left field the brain can take somebody, he just like was getting worse and worse. Then he wasn't eating that much. David, David, you gotta keep eating. Two mouthfuls is not enough. You gotta eat. This is a video she took back in January when things got really bad. She was trying to process and understand the sudden change. You don't have to use the fork on the toast. You can pick up the toast and put it to your mouth and bite it. In the video, you can see he slowly brings the slice of toast up to his face, but stops an inch away. He starts biting in the air. You gotta bite the toast, David. You gotta bite the toast. So there were things like this building up. That day she called the police. She knew one thing for sure. She needed to get David to the hospital, which wouldn't be easy. His psychiatric care provider, they didn't have clearance to get David into a psychiatric hospital. And his regular nurse couldn't help either. She thought her best bet would be to go through Mobile Crisis. It's a program of mental health co-op, and they run a 24-7 phone line for people who are experiencing a mental health emergency. They're there to offer guidance and, in some cases, dispatch crisis counselors. The only way to get him admitted, Ellie says, was to go by ambulance and have one of those crisis counselors meet them at the ER. That's the only way to do it where the person themselves isn't asking for it. That is a big, huge freaking obstacle that has to change where, you know, somebody is in in obvious mental breakdown of some sort and they won't too readily do anything about it because the person themselves isn't asking for help. Well, how the hell can they ask for help when they're beyond being able to do that? Ellie says responders didn't pay attention to her. They didn't understand what she was saying about her husband's situation. Still, they did get him to the hospital on Dickerson Pike, but then communication with the mobile crisis unit was tough. By the time a doctor had seen David, the mobile crisis employee had gone home for the day. 
All she's told by the hospital is that David has been checked out. He's ready to come home. What are you talking about? He is far from ready to come home. But apparently they'd already had him sitting out in the, in the waiting room by himself for a couple hours. She says that night at home was the worst. David became incontinent, and she's not in a place to physically handle a man his size. They make it through, though, and the next day she tries again. Metro Nashville Police Fire and Medical. Um, my husband has been in a serious mental decline for the past 10 days, and he's been getting increasingly worse each passing day. This time, she says Mobile Crisis advised her to call the non-emergency police number and flat out say this is a mental health crisis. And I just did not like the idea of having to call the police for that because I hear stories all the time of people getting killed because they're mentally ill and they act up. And I did not want to have to call the police. But it seemed like um, my only option at that point. The responders who came out, Ellie says they were wonderful. One in particular, he told her, let, let me assure you that I am going to do everything in my power to, to, to get him the help he needs. And just hearing somebody assure me of it at that point, because I really thought if he didn't get help, he was he was going to die. He was going to dehydrate. You know, he was just going to just rot away here, you know, and it shouldn't have to be that hard. It should be easier to get help for somebody you love just because it's the mind doesn't make it any less of an emergency. David was in the hospital for about 11 weeks, and he did almost die with a diagnosis of malignant catatonia. Now, it took multiple hospitals and teams to get him the treatment he needed. He's still struggling even a few months later, but he's home now and hanging in there. If he hadn't had Ellie to advocate for him and fiercely for him, this could have been a very, very different story. Now, as we heard, Ellie had a positive experience calling the police. It was a long road, but they got the help they needed. That certainly has not been the case for everyone. My next guest also turned to the, to the police when her son was experiencing a mental health crisis. Karen Griffin, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your story with us. Our listeners may be familiar with your story. Your son, Jacob Griffin, was experiencing a mental health crisis. You ended up losing him that night after he was shot and killed in a standoff with Metro Police. And first, I'm very sorry for your loss. Thank you so much for saying so. I appreciate it. Can you tell us about Jacob? What was he like? Jacob was a, a big, jolly guy. He was six foot four. He weighed about 220 pounds, had long uh, brown and red hair, wore a little goatee, always had a big smile on his face, um, gave big, warm hugs, loved animals, and spent his time. He, he was so brilliant. He had an IQ above 150. Mm. And he typically, he could stay awake two and three days working on projects and uh, keeping notes about ideas that he had. And from about age 15 to age 22 or three, those notes and ideas began making less and less sense. Um, some of the things, when you have schizophrenia, which was Jacob's diagnosis, sometimes you believe things that are not true. Mm. And when you have false beliefs and you begin to incorporate those into your way of life, um, those types of decisions based on things that are false can really have very impactful um, consequences. When Jacob began showing signs of struggling with his mental health, 
Did you all seek medical services for him? Of course, yes. He had psychiatric care ongoing from about age 15. The very first sign that we had that Jacob was um, in some psychological distress, we had a family trip planned to go to the Seattle area, which is a place where we have a lot of family. My mother is from there. And Jacob refused to get on the plane. He was absolutely convinced that the U.S. government was using airplanes as a part of some antenna network to um, implant thoughts and read our thinking. And obviously that wasn't true. And, and we tried very hard to dissuade him of this. It was not possible. And that was he was 16 years old when that happened. Mm. The blur between brilliance and insanity is really a very, very thin line. And it's hard for people to understand. Jacob was not violent. And his brilliance made him one of the best conversationalists. He had the the most incredible sense of humor. He understood anything that you had to talk to him about. Sometimes his ideas about them, his reactions to facts were a little strange, but he understood everything. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with Karen Griffin, whose son Jacob was shot and killed in a standoff with Metro Police last year. I want to go back to that day. Mm. What happened that led you to make that call to police? The day that he died, he was harboring a false belief about the goodwill, his former employer. And on that particular day, um, he was expressing in text messages to me that he was going to kill all the people at the Goodwill. Jacob had threatened to kill me every day for eight years, Mm. and I largely ignored that. I I personally did not feel like I was in danger uh, with Jacob, but he had been in decline for several months. When Jacob was texting me, he was indicating in his text there were about 500 texts, and he was telling me that time was up that he was very, very angry that Goodwill had let him go and that he was going to go over there and end the life of anyone standing in that building. Mm. And I was I, I was inclined not to believe him. And I think any family member out there who has family with schizophrenia will relate to what I'm saying. You don't want it to be true. And schizophrenia is so strange to encounter. It's such an odd affliction. And so when you're confronted with it, you're inclined to think that someone is being um, difficult or sideways or uncooperative, when in fact, they actually literally believe what they're saying to you. And so on that particular day, I, I was afraid, I was very afraid that he was serious. I had never heard Jacob threaten other people before. And so my family and I discussed it. And we made a decision to call the non-emergency number in Davidson County. When the police went out and tried to talk with him, they actually, at somewhere mid-event, they sent an officer, a couple of officers to our house to get audio recordings from Jacob's brother and sister, my son and daughter, George and Caroline. And George, at the moment, said to the officers, do you even understand schizophrenia? Do you know that trying to negotiate with a schizophrenic is ridiculous? He is starring in his own movie. He doesn't hear you. He is involved in his own thinking, in his own beliefs, and is tied up in a movie that you're not in. And so it's almost like when you're sitting at a drive-in movie and you can see two screens, but you can only hear the one that you're watching. 
somebody in the, the lot next to you is watching a different film and hearing something different. You might be able to see it playing out, but you have no idea what they believe and what they're hearing. That's kind of what it's like to talk to a schizophrenic. So the police tried for several hours and then effectively gave up. They decided that time was up, even though they had invested three hours in speaking to someone who I'm sure was not hearing them. And Jacob was, I'm certain, determined to end that event the way he wanted to end it. And I will never know what that was exactly for him, but I know that whatever the police were trying to tell him, he wasn't hearing them. He was uncooperative for three to four hours, and then they decided that that lack of cooperation, as I said, it would be easy to mistake what you hear and see from a schizophrenic as a lack of cooperation. Mm -hmm. It isn't. It is that person is watching their own movie. They are in their own movie and you can't break through. You can shout, you can scream, you can negotiate. It's not going to break them from what they're experiencing. Jacob was uncooperative. That's true in reality, but they didn't need to end the siege when they did. I maintain they could have waited him out. What were you expecting from the police? I was expecting they had a committal order and I was sitting at home one mile away thinking that they that maybe Jacob was finally going to get some help. Jacob had for at least two years refused any kind of medication assistance, housing assistance. Um, my mother and I and my son and daughter were very involved with Jacob. We tried all the time to help him and affect some sort of substantial change in his life. And it, it really wasn't possible. And so I was thinking the whole afternoon that they were going to help him, that maybe we would be able to get him some medication and get him into some housing. And then the next thing I knew, the, the police came to my house and told me that he was dead. Now, I understand a mobile crisis unit was there, and that's a program of the mental health co-op we heard about earlier. Basically, they run a 24-7 phone line for people experiencing mental health emergency. What did they do? to de-escalate the situation? That's a great question. The mobile crisis team was on the scene and they were never allowed to speak to Jacob. One significant factor uh, working against Jacob that day, he had a gun. I think it's important to mention that about six weeks before this particular day, I had visited in person with a detective over at the Brentwood Police Department. I went there to ask for their help. I went there to let them know that I was very concerned that Jacob had a gun and that I believed that gun was going to get Jacob killed, mm. either by the police or by his own hand. And the detective on that day at Brentwood told me that he, that I was very likely right, that if any police action were taken to try to get that gun from Jacob, that he would probably end up injured or dead and that I should do nothing. Mm. And I, all I can say is that uh, Tennessee has up to now refused to participate in any kind of dialogue about an emergency removal protection order. If we had such a law, those are sometimes known as red flag laws. Yes. If we had a red flag log in this country, Jacob was hospitalized involuntarily for his schizophrenia on multiple occasions. We could have gone to the courts. We could have gotten a petition and figured out a way to get that gun. The state of Florida has an ERPA law, an emergency removal law. The sheriffs down in Florida are taking thousands of guns from people, at least temporarily, who shouldn't have them. When you're not rational, when you're not in a good place, when you're looking to hurt yourself or someone else, you shouldn't be able to possess a firearm. This particular state in which we live, you don't even need a permit to carry a gun. 
This is a permitless carry state, and the legislators here are really unwilling to entertain a discussion about a removal order. Um, For people like Jacob, that could have saved his life. What resources do you wish were available to you at the time? Well, I certainly wish the conversation with the Brentwood police had gone differently. I wish that they had been uh, had some resources available to them, like the ERPO law, that would have allowed us to collaborate and create a plan. Um, I think if we'd had enough time and we'd had some planning in the six weeks that ensued between that discussion and his death, maybe we would have been able to get that gun. The gun got him killed. The police, I'm assuming, were afraid. And anytime you're confronted with someone who has a weapon, it's it's a dangerous, heightened, elevated situation. And so the police had, I think, some reason to believe that Jacob might harm them since he was armed. Um, If we had just been able to prevent him having a firearm, he'd be alive. The police would have been able to invite mobile crisis in to talk with him. I think a lot of things would have gone differently if he had been prevented from having that gun. That is Karen Griffin. Her son Jacob was shot and killed in a standoff with police last year while he was experiencing a mental health crisis. Karen, thank you so much for coming onto the show and sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll explore our community-based options when it comes to helping a friend or loved one in a mental health crisis. Do you have questions about what options are available? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. I'm Khalil Ekelona, and this is Nashville. If someone you loved were experiencing a mental health emergency, would you dial 911? The Washington Post has been logging every fatal shooting in the U.S. by an on-duty police officer since 2015. And of 7,500 killings, one quarter of the victims had a mental illness. So for a lot of folks, that answer might be no. Metro Nashville Police are piloting a new program called Partners in Care which gives police the option to send out a mental health counselor first when they get a crisis call. Police say in quarter three of more than 200 co-response events, only 10 resulted in arrest. Unfortunately, no one involved in this program could be available for this show. But what about options that don't involve police at all? I'm joined now by a few local advocates working to build sustainable community-based alternatives. Theater Murphy from No Exceptions Prison Collective, Jane Borum, from Nashville Organized for Action and Hope, and harm reductionist Steve Samra. Welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you all for being here. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Steve, you work in behavioral health, and you've got a pretty broad view on our topic today from both lived and professional experience. So give us a little history on what happens when someone has a mental health crisis in our city and how that might be changing. Primarily, and over a long period of time, um, it has been a police issue only. Uh, You know, there are times when mobile crisis has been involved, but if we look historically, uh, you know, really the prison system, the jail system is, even today, de facto mental health. Uh, it's, It's a warehouse. Um, And we have watched now, uh, certainly in the last probably 10 or 15 years, 
this shift from this sort of um, punitive, we'll do what we need to in order to protect our community to a more sort of harm reduction uh, effort to engage with an individual that's dealing with a mental health challenge. One of the problems with that, and, and you know, as I'm listening to the new pilot uh, you mean partners in care. discussion, is that, yes, you can send a mental health counselor, and that's fantastic. It's a, certainly a step up from what we've done. But there is a lot of bias and stigma even attached to a mental health counselor. And I'm talking about from the, the person's perspective. So one of the things, one of the biggest shifts in the way that we have been engaging and addressing mental health emergencies in this country now is through the use of what are known as peer support workers or certified peer specialists. They're also known as recovery coaches. But these are folks who have the lived experience of mental illness and addiction. They have processed and moved through the system into a recovery orientation. And they have been trained specifically to engage with others who have similar challenges. Mm. Peer, uh, the peer worker piece um, has been instrumental in improving outcomes that are related to this, you know, this issue of mental health engagement and safety. One of them I'll just I'll just reference is the the Police Assisted Addiction and Recovery Initiative, or PARI. And PARI is a national organization that provides technical assistance, and this is exactly what they do partner uh, with local law enforcement, support the efforts, uh, and encourage peer participation. Theta, you used to work for the police department, and you were actually one of the mobile crisis counselors who went out to the scene during a mental health emergency. How did that experience inform your perspective on this? Well, that's where I learned that police and mental health simply did not mix. Mm. Two different cultures, two goals when you're interacting with the community, that they, they cannot be aligned. And so police have no place in dealing with mental health crisis or dealing with mental health provision. And um, as Steve was saying, the closer that the services are to the community, the better they are. So they don't need to be provided through police and they don't need to be provided through courts. They need to be provided directly in the community, preferably by people who are peers. So I understand you're now working on a community-based approach called Nashville Community Crisis Response. Where are you at in that process right now? Well, at this point, we are in the research stage. So we are conducting a community-based research project to get um, input from the people who are most impacted by mental health crises um, and by people who live in the community so we can talk to them about what kind of, of mental health response they want because the community should be driving those policy decisions. It should be coming from the bottom up and not from the top down. What have you heard so far from folks? We have heard that very loudly and clearly that they don't want police involvement in mental health crisis um, because you know, nobody wants to be afraid that their loved one will die or be injured or arrested because they went into a mental health crisis and you called police. Now, Jane, at NOAA, you're also advocating for a community-based response on the so-called HEALS model, which stands for Health, Engagement, and Liaison Services, which would actually send out counselors instead of police. How's that going? 
we're working with the health department now to create a model that would be peer specialist who would certified peer specialist who would be going out with an EMS person. So you have a it's not like the police partners in care, which is considered co-response. Mm-hmm. This is considered community-based and first responder. So you don't have that police involvement at all. Now, how the dispatching will work from the 911 calls, that's something that we still have to work through. Uh, Stephen Martini, who is the director of the emergency communications uh, department at Metro, and the woman in the fire department who is in charge of the EMS, Brooke Haas, Stephen and Brooke are working with about 20 of us to come up with a structure for this new model. It will be like HEALS. I don't think it will be called HEALS, mm-hmm. but as long as it works like HEALS, that's what NOAA is hoping for. Who would these first responders be, the peers? Well, the peer specialists would be sort of like what Stephen's talking about. These would be people who have had lived experience They may have a bachelor's degree. We don't necessarily want anybody with a master's degree because we feel sometimes that taints or gives them a certain bias. You know, when you go into a situation where all you're thinking about is a diagnosis, that Mm -hmm. sometimes clouds your ability to actually listen and find out what's really going on under the surface with this person. You can't establish as good a rapport, for example, and be a good listener if all you're thinking about is what you learned in, you know, college or in your <laughs> your field placement when you were mm-hmm. working on your master's. And so it's a little bit more you have to go into it with a feel rather than be strictly glued to the book, so to speak. Gotcha. Now, <laughs> now, what about a situation where a person who is experiencing a mental health crisis could become potentially dangerous? Mm-hmm. Like, Steve, what's the best course of action then? Well, first, there's a huge misconception that uh, folks who have mental illness are, uh, you know, by by all intents and purposes, violent. In fact, most folks um, w- that that suffer from mental illness would be the victim of violence rather than perpetrating violence. And there's plenty of data around that. You know, the the idea of using peers, uh, people who have had this lived experience and this, you have to remember, they're trained as well. And, uh, you know, it's it's a fairly rigorous training. It's not like a social work training, but it is rigorous in, in the sense that it sets a peer specialist or a recovery coach uh, up to do the type of initial engagement that brings the, it basically de-escalates the situation mm-hmm. to a point where the professionals may be able to then intervene. But the initial contact is typically a peer. And there are a number of successful models of this around the country. So it's been done. Now, in looking through the data, um, from the Partners in Care pilot program in the third quarter, something stood out to me. 51% of the events they responded to involved people age 1 to 34. That's a lot. That's a big number. Theta, how, how does this number, uh, this high number of young people in need of care, how does it affect how community response groups go about offering help and aid? We have to deal with the family. We have to deal with the entire community. And that's why community-based care is best. Um, yes, a lot of people are young because that is when, for one, they're just beginning to to grow into their mental illness. Mm-hmm. It's beginning to manifest. They're beginning to have those first symptoms. And um, as young people, they have not yearned, learned 
how to manage those symptoms. So they go into crisis. And their families also, as these symptoms are new to them, easily get stressed and overburdened by that. Mm -hmm. And so the community, what we would like to see are communities and individuals within community empowered to recognize those symptoms as they're coming on and then to have the services close by and easily available Mm -hmm. when they first start coming up before the person goes into full-fledged crisis. How are we to set these services up to where they're close by and easily available? Well, yes. Now we're talking about a, 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 a overhaul that is really needed of, our, of not just our mental health delivery system, because mental health and physical health go hand in hand. We have to start pe- treating people holistically. Mm-hmm. And we have to remove all of these artificial barriers that keep people from being able to access care immediately. Because so many times, as you were, were um, illustrating with the story um, before Jacob's mother, how she um, tried several times to access care and could not get care until finally it just got to be unmanageable. When people are able to access care when they need it, when those first symptoms come about, we can avert a lot of crises. Mm. But there are so many barriers to care that we just need to remove. So we we need Mm -hmm. an overhaul of our system. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Kaliole Colonna. We're talking this hour about what options are available when someone we know is having a mental health crisis. My guests are Theta Murphy of Nashville Community Crisis Response, Jane Borum of NOAA, and advocate Steve Samra. This past weekend, the 988 crisis hotline went into effect, providing a number for people to call should they or someone they know have a mental health emergency. Theta, what are you expecting from the launch of the hotline? having worked on hotlines for many years. Mm. (laughs) Um, Hotlines can be limited in what they can do um, in as much as the person on the phone is not right there with them and has to rely on the resources that are in the community to provide the actual service. Uh, Hotlines are essential right now because a lot of times when people are in actual crisis, that's the quickest way you can get to somebody who can who can start to de-escalate and bring a person down. It is no substitute for a well-functioning system, which is easy access to care. Anthony Fox is the director of Mental Health Consumers Association. He says he's hesitantly hopeful about the new 988 plans, that there's good potential there, but it has to be done right. You know, we're also going to need to figure out ways so that police will not be the first responders. People need to feel safe when using 911. My brothers and sisters of color do not want to engage in a system when police and emergency personnel will be the first responders. All cultures of people have to trust that the process will benefit them and not make their crisis worse. Hopefully the 988 teams will earn the trust of the community fairly quickly before it becomes just another three-digit number. Jane, what are your hopes <laughs> and concerns about this new 988 number? Well, we've been talking about the 988 number for a couple of years now, so mm. it's not new to all of us who are in this field. And I had posed that same question to Partners in Care about a year ago, 
you know, we need to be prepared for this change. And I think the new structured model, the non the non law enforcement model, will pick up some of those nine eight eight calls. It's a matter of a better screening at the time that the call comes in, the person who is there on the dispatch line. It's a matter of having somebody who can go out if the caller is willing to have somebody come and meet them, as long as they know that that's not going to be a police officer. This is just going to be somebody who wants to talk with you and see what they can do to help you in whatever way they can. You try to make this as laid back and as easy to access as possible. And then the other component of this is to educate people about what different kinds of mental health options they have and what kinds of mental illness illnesses there are. There's so little education in our system, our school system, um, even in our churches. People are not familiar with different kinds of mental health symptoms that that signal difficulty. They're, they're not aware of just what's going on through somebody's mind when that mind has changed. Um, it's scary for, for family members, and oftentimes they'll just back off and not want to push that person because they're sort of fearful of that person. So we need to get rid of the stigma, first of all, and make the mental health services more available in general. And the health department's in a good position to do that. This is health. Mm -hmm. And as uh, Theda was talking about, this is holistic health. You can't separate the physical from the mental. And we have to get people to think that way. What you all are saying draws something to me. There's a lot of moving parts here. There's a lot of coordination mm -hmm. that needs to happen between the city, uh, Metro Police, the, the mental health agencies that are here. How do we plan to do that? Because when I think of people all over Middle Tennessee in the Nashville area, different people have different accesses to resources. Not everybody has the same type of strength of community and networks there. How are we going to coordinate all of this so this can really work holistically, robustly, so anyone can truly get serviced? Steve. So what Theta and, and Jane both have been talking about really in this transformation is moving from what we call the medical model, where a bunch of experts say, <laughs> I know what's wrong with you and I'm only one who can fix you, to having an approach, which it's called a recovery-oriented system of care, or ROSC, and it gets to your point about how do you bring the community in. The, the, the ROSC model is community-based. It involves all the players. There is no wrong door to access the services. Another critically important piece, especially with the 998 rollout. Um, and once we shift to that sort of ROSC mentality, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to raise awareness in the community, educate, as, as Jane was telling telling us, that's a huge piece of this. But that ROSC piece involves the community, and it, this needs to be in the community. It should not be a law enforcement issue. Okay, so, Theta, what do you want to see the city invest in? so that more people who are in the need of mental health care receive it. Well, I'm glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> the first thing we would like to see is to fix the disparity between the money that goes toward policing and courts and coercion and punishment and shift that money into care for the community, into the systems of care, mental health, physical health, education, affordable housing, all of these things that add to the mental health burden of people who are who are living in this city. 
that right now the funding between what is going toward crime and punishment and what is going toward help and healing is vast. And that's a fundamental priority reflected in our budget that needs to shift. That's one easy place where we can start. Mm-hmm. Um, All right, Jane? <laughs> well, I was thinking of other places uh, to start are taking possibly community centers. We have a good system of community centers in Nashville. Uh, that's under the Parks and Recreation Department. But still, th- these are places where people feel comfortable going. This would be a great place for educational programs. It'd be a great place for little mini clinics. You could have little mini health clinics there. Um, they could be doing both mental health and physical health um, with uh, nurse practitioners now that are available. That could easily be done. It could be done by peer certified specialists also who are working with a, a, a nurse practitioner. Uh, it, as Steve said, it's a matter of priorities. You know, are we going to make this a priority? Are we going to make this our our public safety and our public health system? Or are we going to just have that as sort of like the throwaway, you know, the stepchild of, of our city? And, and too bad that they don't get the good services like people who have better insurance do. You know, that's that's just not the way a fair system works. Steve. It's about whole person care, right? It's about coming at this and in a really holistic way, looking. Theta just nailed it with, you know, we need housing. We need affordable housing. We need employment. We need access to things that, that for many of the folks who are struggling, these things are completely out of reach. And they do exacerbate mental health challenges. They exacerbate substance use challenges. Mm. When you have no hope... And there doesn't seem like any way out. And I'll speak for just myself. What's the point? What's the point? I I mean, I I have nothing to live for. And in order to sort of make it through day by day, I'm going to numb myself. It's the only way I can get through it. That is Steve Samra of C4 Innovations. He was joined by Theta Murphy with No Exceptions Prison Collective and Jane Borum of NOAA. Thank you all for being here. I know we've just scratched the surface, so we look forward to having you all back soon. Thank you. Thank you. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Chernecki, the masterminds behind our theme music, are Larange and Namir Blade. Special thanks to Michael Randolph, Amanda Clellan, and Amanda Brock. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.